Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. The president and, and the political leaders have not helped. Um, the president has been downplaying it from day one, even tweeting last week about uh, the flu. The flu is the wrong comparison. This is uh, a much deadlier disease. And that doesn't help when that's the message coming out of the White House. Um, but I think public health people, doctors like me, have to step up and, and be a, a much more effective at communicating just how big a deal this is. That was Dr. Ashish Jha. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Last week, I mentioned that actress Juliette Lewis was going to be today's guest. And while the conversation I had with Juliet is uh, no doubt one of my favorites in a long time, uh, you know, she's as talented and thoughtful of a person that you could hope for. She's exactly the kind of guest that I love having. And yet, it seemed, given the week that has unfolded in front of us and uh, what we expect in the weeks ahead, it seemed necessary to try to talk about COVID-19, which is something that is going to impact all of our lives. So in a slight pivot, today's episode is with Ashish K. Jha. He's a physician, health policy researcher, and the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If you've turned on your television over the past few days, you've probably seen Dr. Jha uh, talk about COVID-19 on a number of shows 
including Anderson Cooper, The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, Joy Reid, PBS NewsHour. He's been on all of them. And I think one of the reasons he's been on all of them is because he's particularly level-headed and knowledgeable. He has a way of speaking about this virus and where we're at right now as a country. To give some context, about 25 minutes before we sat down this Friday, uh, President Trump declared a national emergency. This declaration, according to every expert on the subject, was long overdue. The recurring resistance President Trump offered in the face of the virus uh, was shocking, not because it was rash, science-denying behavior, but because I realized, and, and maybe I'm not alone in this, but I realized in this moment, from this president, I expect nothing less. I was shocked because the lack of urgency and the ignorance in which he has held this office has become so commonplace, so normalized. Over the past four years, it's been easy to roll your eyes as he's lamented about the liberal media, how he's insisted that there was no foreign interference in our elections, or how there was no collusion or quid pro quo, or all these other terms we keep hearing and regurgitating over and over again. It was easy to ignore that behavior, and it was even easier to laugh at it. But I believe right now, it's this moment, a moment that is truly life or death, that makes ignoring him, laughing at him, impossible, at least for me. And I know uh, many people listening are not used to hearing politics on this show, it's not something I'm interested in talking about on this show. I am not an expert. I'm not well-schooled. Um, I'm vaguely informed like many of you. But I have to insist on this point that what is happening with COVID-19 and what's about to happen in this country has nothing to do with politics. And it has everything to do with you and I. So I promise you we will go back to um, the kind of conversations I want to have with artists and activists and filmmakers and writers. I want that more than anything. And I think in this moment, we all need things to take our mind off what is happening. But for this Sunday, for right now, um, it's why I wanted to have on Dr. Ja. He's an expert in this field and has all the information that I certainly want to know. There are many questions I didn't get to ask him. If you have questions that I didn't ask and that you'd like answers to, um, I cannot promise anything, but uh, I hope to have on Dr. Ja again in the next few weeks. So feel free to write me at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Before we get into it, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Ja and his team again for helping make this happen on such short notice. It's been a crazy week for him and for all of us. So for him to give us 45 minutes of his time to offer his wisdom and insight and level-headedness um, really means the world to me. And I hope those of you listening right now feel the same. So this is going to be a long, painful couple of months. And the best thing I think we can do for each other is to be mindful, is to be conscientious, and is to look out for each other. I know that sounds silly. I know that sounds simple. But it means not going outside if you're sick. It means not having large social gatherings. It means going to the grocery store 
and buying what you need for you and your family. I know that's hard to do. I know it feels like a post-apocalyptic, I am legend, I need to buy everything right now. You don't. You really don't. What you need to do is leave enough for other people to take care of themselves and their family. This is not a subject I'm an expert on, but um, basic human decency, caring about the person that you do not know next to you in the car, on the street, on the bus, your neighbor, your coworker. I know in this moment, uh, we all have a streak of self-preservation, but I really believe the best way to preserve yourself is to care about other people. So with all that in mind, uh, I want to thank you for being here, listening to this show in this moment. We're going to do our best on the podcast to keep a pace with the times. Um, we have Naomi Klein and Juliet Lewis coming up next. Uh, many more people will be added. And uh, I really thank you for listening. So without further ado, here is Dr. Ashish John. My name is Ashish Jha, and uh, I'm here on a Friday afternoon um, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, you have been on every news program uh, since I've turned on the television over the last 48 hours. How are you doing right now? I am tired. Um, I am feeling, still feeling pretty focused in the sense that I feel like we got a big problem and I'm I think that I can play a helpful role in trying to make it better and that keeps me going but yeah I'm feeling it was it's been a long day did you expect the president to declare a national emergency today I did I did I I thought it, it was so clearly needed and uh, and I think the pressure on him had been building so much uh, that I would have been really surprised. Though not much surprises me about this president, but I think I would have been surprised uh, if he did not. I think it was it was time. Right. And just a few days ago, you went on PBS NewsHour and criticized this administration, describing President Trump's response to the virus as a fiasco. Watching his speech this afternoon, did you see anything different? You know. He looks like a fish out of water. He looks like somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. I, I think he had no idea that part of being a president is managing complexity. And he is not a, a man who revels in complexity. He, he likes simplistic things. And I think I saw today, much like I saw his Oval Office speech the other night, uh, somebody who was really deeply uncomfortable in the position he was in, but knew that he had to do something. You know, uh, many people are, are tuned in to the cable news network 24-hour cycle, but there are many more people, many people who listen to podcasts that maybe aren't following this day by day, minute by minute. So if you could, how did we get to this place exactly? And And it seems to have started first in China, but also in this country with the firings and the CDC. Yeah. Yeah, so for, for people who have not been kind of deeply involved in this, 
Um, here is basically how the coronavirus uh, outbreak has played out. We think sometime in late November, somebody in China, in, in Wuhan, got the infection. We think it came from an animal, probably a bat, and then started spreading it. And for much of the month of November and December, the Chinese government suppressed the infection. Uh, they went after doctors and nurses who, who brought it up and raised concerns. But by the end of December, it was too late. It was just, it had spread so much that the Chinese government could no longer deny it. And they reported it to the World Health Organization. Um, January is where things really kind of went crazy. And by early to mid-January, Wuhan was in big trouble, lots of people infected, people dying. And a pretty good sense that, you know, China is a pretty mobile country now. Millions of Chinese travel every year, including from Hubei province, where Wuhan is. And by that time, already epidemiologists were saying, hey, guys, this disease has left China. It has spread throughout the world because these people have been traveling. Um, we put in a travel ban from China, um, but we basically did very little else. And so while China fought really a heroic battle against this virus, and we think is on the verge of winning that battle, um, different countries around the world used that time while China was fighting that battle differently. Um, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, others used that time to get ready and start dealing with it. The U.S. just sat around. I mean, it's uh, shocking to me that we had a good six, eight weeks to prepare to get our diagnostic tests ready, to get the system ready, to prepare the American people for what was coming. And we just wasted all of that. And we can talk about why. But it's part of a broader problem that's come out of this administration um, this this desire to say, well, if we kind of bury our heads, we, we act like something doesn't exist, it will go away. Sometimes things do, but most of the times they don't. And, and you know, as you mentioned, it, this story goes back multiple years ago where we had an entire pandemic response team at the National Security Council. It was uh, built during the Obama administration. And about two years ago, President Trump and um, you know, and John Bolton, who was the national security advisor, just fired all those people, just got rid of that entire office mm -hmm. and said, we don't need that. And here we are. Talking to the people that you know at the CDC, have you figured out why he fired people? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of psychoanalysis and it's hard to do. My sense is he's a guy who doesn't like bad news and, and wants to sort of surround himself in a bubble where everybody just praises him. People who work on things like disease outbreaks, pandemics, they are people who are natural worriers. You know, they're going to come to you and say, we got a worry here. We got a problem here. This thing could end up being serious. And my sense is he, he didn't want that in his life. He didn't want that in his administration. And part of, I think, getting rid of this team particularly was not because these guys weren't doing a great job. Actually, the, the people who were running the pandemic uh, response within the White House uh, under the first couple of years of the Trump administration were fabulous people. They were, they were really expert, top of the game. Uh, I, my sense is he just didn't want to hear about it. So uh, he thought the easiest way to deal with it is just to get rid of it from his day-to-day uh, -day life. You mentioned China seems to be uh, defeating the virus. Uh, I know they've taken a whole bunch of steps what does that look like for them? 
You know, China is an interesting country, and I think it's important not to look at them too simplistically uh, as either some great model or some evil place. They're complicated. Um, the same authoritarian regime that was able to suppress all the data about this disease outbreak for a month, month and a half, they used the same kind of authoritarian approach to combat this virus in a way that I don't think any other country can do. Uh, I don't know if any other country would even want to do. Um, they really shut the country down. Mm -hmm. And if you take a, that, take a look at that province, the Hubei province, they shut off all travel. In Wuhan, they told people, you cannot leave your house. One person from the home could go out every three days to go get groceries. This was enforced by police and the military, and they used facial recognition software. They used a whole set of state, you know, police state tools to enforce this, and it worked. Mm -hmm. Of course, like I can't imagine what the psychological and other health effects have been on the people of Wuhan to live under that over the last six weeks, but no one can question whether it worked or not. It did stop the viral spread. Right. So there seems to be a kind of larger moral question, which is that if these fairly authoritarian practices work in minimizing the damage, are they justified in making people feel trapped, claustrophobic, uh, psychologically unwell, which I think many of those people, although we're not hearing from them, you have to imagine it's had unseen psychological effects on these people. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, a lot of what has happened to the people of Wuhan, you and I would consider, you know, human rights violations. We can't really imagine what it must have been to live under those circumstances. Um, I, I want to acknowledge that it worked because I don't want us to have an easy way out of this. I don't want to say, oh, it didn't really work. We shouldn't do those things. Um, I want us to struggle with exactly the question you're raising, which is, what if these things that we think are terrible actually work? What do we do? And the way I've thought about it is, look, the same authoritarian kind of uh, mindset uh, that made that work was actually what got them into the trouble in the first place. And one way out of this is to realize that if you don't suppress information, if you actually tackle stuff earlier, mm -hmm. you don't have to do these very draconian things. And so one of the things that I've been arguing in the U.S. is, you know, I don't want to get to a point where we're asking, are we going to use the military or the police to shut people into their homes? Hey, let's cancel trips to Disneyland. Yeah, you know, that doesn't quite feel authoritarian. That feels, you know, not great, but we can live with that. Well, um, let's I, do those things. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you want to push back on that? Well, yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't have to push back. I will say, um, I think trips to Disneyland should have been canceled a long time ago. <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. this needed to happen. Yeah. That's my own personal stance. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, 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 that larger moral question uh, is the one that's sticking with me. But I want to point to something Jared Kushner said earlier this week. The New York Times reported that Mr. Trump has left it to others to set the course in combating the pandemic and has indicated he is in no rush to take further action. Among the advisors who share the president's more jaundiced view is his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, 
who considers the problem more about public psychology than a health reality. That quote, to me, is something I think we're going to have to grapple with because there are a lot of people uh, still who think this is not a huge issue, that it is about public psychology. What do you make of that? I see the fact that there are still people who believe that as a failing of people like me, Um, people who are public health officials, people who are public health leaders, doctors, not having done a good enough job communicating uh, just how big a deal this is. Um, When I hear health reality, I'll tell you what health reality is. Um, There are people in Lombardy, in Italy, one of the richest regions of Italy, with great hospitals, great doctors, people walking or being wheeled into hospitals there on death's door and being turned away because there are not enough hospital beds. That's a health reality. That is what terrifies me. That is what awaits us if we do not act. And the fact that there are still people out there who say, well, this is just like the flu. No, it's not like the flu. It's 10 or 20 times more deadly than the flu. Um, It's much more insidious in some ways. Uh, It's spreading in our community. And I just don't know if we in the public health community have done a good enough job. Um, We're always trying to straddle that line between being appropriately concerned and not creating panic. I just, I worry that we didn't get that right. There are too many people out there. Now, let's be fair. The president and and the political leaders have not helped. Um, The president has been downplaying it from day one, even tweeting last week about uh, the flu. The flu is the wrong comparison. This is uh, a much deadlier disease. Uh, Jared is, of course, wrong. Um, And and that doesn't help when that's the message coming out of the White House. Um, But I think public health people, doctors like me, have to step up and and be much more effective at communicating just how big a deal this is. How do you think you can be more effective? You know, I I struggle with that. Um, I mean, certainly speaking up, talking about this, but it's hard, right? Like, people don't want to hear it. And, of course, for any individual person, the risk is still low, so they hear me say things like that, and they say, well, then it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. And, and the problem here is, you know, people have a hard time with things like percentages. And so when they hear, well, this disease might have a mortality rate of 1% or 2%, mm-hmm. that feels pretty small, right? I feel like, all right, well, I'm probably going to be okay. But, you know, as I said, it's 10 to 20 times more than the flu. It's, it's, a, real, it's a real thing. And I think... In general, we have not done a good job of figuring out how to communicate risk to people. Risk is a hard thing for people to understand. Hard because they don't want to hear it or because we don't have the bandwidth to properly explain it? So I think part of it is people don't want to hear it. I think part of it is that... As humans, there is sort of a part of our brain that assesses risk in terms of what feels directly in front of us. I mean, if I look at issues around climate change, mm-hmm. you know, most Americans recognize that climate change is real, that it's bad, we got to act on it. But it's a risk that feels off in the distance. And our kind of brain says, eh, I get it, but I got real issues right now. I got to pay my bills. I got to deal with my kids. I got to deal with all this stuff. I'm going to hold off on dealing with climate change. And I get that. 
I think that the, some of these things come up in the same way. I come out and say, okay, this virus has a 1% risk, and people go, okay, look, I got a lot of other problems to deal with. I don't know how to factor that into my life. I'm going to keep going. Mm. And I think they're confronted with these issues when schools start closing, when sporting events start getting shut down. Then they realize, oh, my God, there's something very serious going on. Um, but that's pretty late in the ballgame to communicate these things. I'm always looking for advice on how to communicate more effectively. I'd, I don't know that we've done a good job figuring out how to do that. Well, I think the number that really made the siren start to go off was from Dr. Brian Monahan, who uh, is the attending physician of Congress in the U.S. Supreme Court. And he said that he expects 70 million to 150 million people in the U.S. will become infected with COVID-19. What do you make of those numbers? Look, that basically assumes, you know, sort of 20 to maybe 70% of Americans will get infected. Um, the way to think about that is, you know, most people will either get infected or, or one of their close family members will. Um, those, are, those are pretty high numbers. Um, unfortunately, the best epidemiologists are predicting those numbers and, you know, the, the models are really good. I don't believe it's fate, meaning I don't believe that we can't alter that. I think there are things we can do, some things which we are now starting to do, um, that I can, that I think can potentially reduce those numbers. Um, but if they do give you a sense of the gravity of the situation, that we're basically talking about estimates where maybe a third or half of all American adults will end up getting infected. Uh, that's pretty stunning. That's a lot. That's life-altering. I mean, it's uh, catastrophic. Society-altering, right? Like, what will our country and our society and social norms look like once you go through a year or two of that kind of infection? How does it change people's... How does it change politics? How does it change relationships? Um, how does it change what people think about? And of course, if millions of people end up dying from that, um, that, that is also catastrophic. So, um, you know, this is why I think we've, a lot of us have found the kind of downplaying of this so frustrating because um, even under the best of scenarios, we got a big task ahead of us to deal with this virus. So why don't we walk through the immediate things we're doing both as a country and one can do on their own, independent of government involvement? So as a country, um, there are three big things we need to get going on. One is we've got to really ramp up testing. We, because when you're not testing people, you have no idea how bad the infection is. You don't know who's got it, who doesn't. And the infection continues to spread throughout the community. And that's a huge problem. And I'm hoping... Uh, you know, sort of fingers and toes crossed here, that in the next week to 10 days, we're going to make real progress. Um, it's worth remembering that the number of cases in the community double every six days if you're not intervening and if you're not really isolating people who are infected, because that's just the underlying pattern. So my best guess is today on Friday, you know, March 13th, my guess is, best guess is that there may be 10,000 Americans uh, with COVID-19 infection. Um, in six days, that number might be 20, and six days after that, it'll be 40. It's going to grow pretty fast. So we don't have a lot of time on the on the testing. We got to get that up and running very, very quickly. Um, I'm, I'm a bit more hopeful today than I was yesterday that that'll happen. 
The second policy thing, which actually will play into something people need to do individually, is this whole idea of social distancing. Um, we cannot, for the next, I don't know, three, six months, um, we cannot have large gatherings. We cannot do major social events. Um, and that, I think, is going to have a huge psychological and mental health effect on our, on our country. Um, but we are going to have to get pretty isolated in some ways. Small gatherings of a few people are fine, but no big sporting events, no concerts, no plays, no musicals, um, no conferences, none of that stuff. And, and it may be that schools and most workplaces stay closed for a while as well. Um, it's probably the best strategy we have for slowing the rate of infection. And then the third is this whole area of getting the healthcare system ready. Because what's, what we've learned from Italy is when you get a spike in cases and the hospitals can't handle it, people die at extraordinarily high rates because basically there is no healthcare system to take care of them. And so that has, requires a whole lot of work. On a personal level, I think this is going to be a real psychological stressor for a lot of people. Um, there's some simple things we absolutely have to do. Um, it cannot, and again, you've heard this, it feels really simple and trite even, but you got to wash your hands like all the time. Every time you come home, every time you touch stuff, you got to wash your hands. Soap and water is better than Purell. If you can get any Purell from CVS or Walgreens, which is very hard these days, mm -hmm. use that stuff in between. But people really have to do that. With that in mind, I have a question of logistics. Were the citizens of China or Italy or any of these places where corona broke out, were they taking the precautionary steps that you're mentioning here? No, not, not nearly enough. And certainly in Italy, I think what happened was that for weeks on out, the standard you know, kind of joke was, hey, this just, it's just the flu. It's nothing worse than the flu. It's like a bad flu season. And people did not take that idea of really, really being diligent about soap, water, um, other ways of, of disinfecting. They just didn't take it seriously. And that's why um, it's so critically important that we, uh, in, as Americans, as Europeans who, in other places outside of Italy, who are, I, I see all of us as maybe one or two weeks behind where Italy um, was, and that gives us just about that much time to alter the course of the infections in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and pe people just were not, they didn't take it as seriously, and that's why it's so important that we do. Um, it really does make a big difference. Um, and, you know, beyond, beyond that, and by the way, it's worth thinking, like soap and water is really probably the best thing you can do. Like, it works really, really well. Um, beyond that, there is a whole bunch of personal stuff that is, I think, going to be very difficult for people, but it's important for people to, um, you know, to stick with. Like, it's going to be hard for people to have kids at home all the time if they have children at home. Mm -hmm. People aren't going to be. And the key here is this social distancing stuff. This is not two days. This is not five days. This is going to be many weeks. And finding ways of getting through this period, I worry, is going to be very, very hard for a lot of people. Um, no one says don't go see any friends. Go see a friend or two. But don't host big dinner parties. Don't go out um, with 20 people to a... Like, those are just... And, and of course, those are the lifeblood for so many Americans. Mm -hmm. So I think the personal is going to be about how we change our own behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis for an extended period of time, at least weeks, if not months. It seems to me that you keep coming back to 
these kind of looming psychological issues. This idea of maybe not totally being able to trust one another, being weary of one another. Just the very physical, tactile act of not shaking someone's hand signals a kind of larger psychological effect. How do you see that playing out? No, it's it, it, there are two parts of that that are really important. I mean, one is, you know, like what has happened to uh, people who are Chinese Americans, people of other uh, descent of other Asian countries, Koreans, Japanese. This idea of the other, um, which has always been part of our country and our, our psychology, right. has really come to the forefront um, with Asian Americans. And of course, and I don't want to kind of go too far off uh, on this issue, but you know, there's always been this like myth of oh, the Asian Americans is the model minority; they're different. Um, I say that uh, you know, with with uh, uh, some kind of ridicule of, of that idea that there is such a notion. But we've had that, and now we with because this virus originated in China, um, there's been a whole lot of kind of discriminatory. Uh, action and behavior turn towards this quote-unquote model minority population. It just, it, it's been very painful to watch how a lot of people have reacted to it. Um, anytime you're under a stress, it's very easy to see the world as us versus them. First, I think it was the kind of turning that framework towards Asian Americans. Um, I worry that we're going to turn it towards each other in, in broader ways. You know, being out on a uh, out in the in the park and seeing somebody cough, uh, people cough, and they don't always cough because they have coronavirus. You know, we people used to cough before coronavirus showed up in America. People will cough <laughs> for a long time after coronavirus goes away. But that, like, trying to figure out who's contagious, who's going to get you sick, how do I stay away from them, and these social things like giving people hug, people giving shaking people's hand. It was a way of building trust and saying, you're part of my team, we're all part of this together. That social distancing, which is so incredibly important for fighting this disease, um, I think kind of tears a little bit at that social fabric. And what I worry about is when we emerge from this six or 12 months from now, that that that, that isn't just a temporary kind of strain on the social fiber. I worry that it'll end up being a long-term effect on the social fiber of this country. And um, and then, you know, anytime that happens, you always have political leaders who love to exploit those kinds of things uh, for political gain. So um, that's what I worry about, that, the, that sort of long-term psychological and social effect of what we're about to go through. It's hard to imagine that we could be more divided than we already were three weeks ago. I mean, we were looking at the news cycle and it seemed... The biggest division in this country was coming between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And now that feels trivial. It feels anecdotal. I mean, it's, it's, it's so irrelevant to this larger issue. You know, that what moments like this are supposed to do is they're supposed to unify us. Um, we've had, obviously, you know, in the history of the United States, often it's war, um, uh, but but when you have a kind of the idea of a common enemy, and in this case it's not a country, it's certainly not China. It's a it's a very small, um, you know, viral particle called coronavirus. Uh, uh, you know, COVID nineteen is the name we've given it. That's the common enemy, and 
with under the context of the right leadership, um, I would think that we could kind of uh, bring people together in a way that might have seemed uh, undoable six, four, six weeks ago, three months ago. Um, I just don't know if our current political leadership is up for that task. Um, but people are hungry for it because this virus, of course, and this is going to sound trite, but I'll say it, you know, the virus, of course, doesn't really care much if you're Republican, Democrat, socialist, liberal, market-oriented. We're all equally vulnerable. And, uh, and so the common cause that it should create in our country, uh, some part of me is uh, maybe naively... Uh, of the belief that that there will be some of that, um, but I worry that people will use it uh, uh, for political gain. Is there a past model or event in history that could put what's happening in context? I mean, there's certainly been crises that we as a country have faced, Um, things that have either brought people together, um, you know, people always point to things like 9-11 or going back a lot further to like World War II and, and what happened at Pearl Harbor. You know, clinically and from a public health point of view, the example people are using right now is the, is the Spanish flu of, of 1918, the global influenza pandemic mm-hmm. that killed between 30 and 50 million people around the world. It was just about 100 years ago. And, uh, and, and there are a lot of features of that, that that people keep referring to in the context of this outbreak. Do you believe it's an accurate model? There are a lot of features of it that are similar. It was a truly global outbreak. Almost every country in the world was affected. You know, one of the funny reasons things is like, you know, I often, I quiz my students on uh, one of my questions is why was it called the Spanish flu? And there's an ironic story there, um, which is that, you know, it was 1918, so it was still part of World War I. And there was essentially a news blackout in almost every country in the world. Nobody was talking about this, the influenza outbreak. And one of the few countries where there was not a news blackout was Spain, because Spain was not uh, actively involved in the war. And so the only place I was talking about the influenza outbreak was Spain, because there wasn't censorship. And so it became known as the Spanish flu, which is, again, the ultimate irony, because Spain did not suffer you know, disproportionately. And in fact, uh, we think that we actually think that that the influenza outbreak began in the Northeast United States, uh, maybe even around the Boston region. There's other stuff that suggests it might have started in Kansas, but it could have easily been called the American flu because it started here. Um, but the global nature of it, the very large numbers of people who were infected, the very large numbers of people who died, all of those really make people feel like in the modern era if you're going to call 100 years ago a modern era, um, really is the, is the closest thing. None of the other outbreaks, not Ebola, not other flu outbreaks, not H1N1, none of them have the kind of feel uh, of what we're going through with corona, um, ex, you know, uh, beyond the, the influenza outbreak of 1918. So I think it's not a bad model. And there, there are always differences. And the world is a very different place now. Um, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned. So before we leave, why don't we walk through some prognostications here. You know, as this grows and is likely to grow, um, I have a very practical question, which is that children are going to be kept home. Schools are going to close down. I assume many doctors and nurses have children. There seems to be a, a, a scheduling conflict here. I'm sure this is something you've been thinking about. 
You know, I, I've been talking to a lot of school districts about whether they should close or not. And I, what I've been doing is I've been walking through all the reasons not to close. And then I tell them that I think they should probably close. And so that's a funny way to go about it. But I, what I want to try to do is lay out for them what the downsides are and why. And there are three main ones. You know, I'll just give you very quickly. Um, while kids themselves, uh, you know, don't get all that sick. And so um, they're not a particularly high risk group. Um, but what we do know is that when you, when you close down schools, um, you really harm the workforce, which you described, that people can't get to work. There are a lot of essential employees, a lot of uh, hourly wage workers who don't have easy access to uh, childcare. They're not going to be able to work, and that's going to put a huge strain on families. And then, again, the, the doctors and nurses turn out to have kids too, and that's going to put a big stress. So that's one. Um, second is, you know, a lot of kids, nutrition comes from schools. They get their hot meals for breakfast and lunch. It's one thing to close down schools for a few days. If you're going to be closed for weeks or months, there's a huge nutritional challenge you're going to put your kids, put those kids through. And we got to figure out how to make sure that, that uh, poorer kids, kids from uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds, are not going hungry for weeks or months. And last but not least, one of the things I worry a lot about is for a lot of people, they're not going to be able to find child care. What are they going to do? They're going to take their kids and send them to grandma and grandpa and, and uh, other elderly relatives. And of course, those are the people who are most vulnerable to getting sick and really having a hard time with the coronavirus. And so you worry a lot that with closing of schools, you're actually going to put kids and older people more in direct contact and maybe make the infection rates among older people much worse. Those are all real concerns. I still think we have to do it. I still think we have to do it because we've got to slow the infection rate down. Um, and so I raise those concerns because I think we've got to deal with them. They're all really important issues. We've got to make sure kids are getting fed. we got to make sure that we can get doctors and nurses to get to the hospital. Because if they can't, then we can't take care of sick people who are coming in. we got to make sure that we provide child care alternatives in a way so that we're not exposing elderly people uh, to their grandkids, who, of course, they want to take care of but are not probably safe for them to be taken care of. Um, so that's where I am on this. This is a very tough call. I think the right call is to close the schools. But we should not think that this is a simple act, that you just do it and then you're all good. you got to deal with all the downstream effects that it's going to have. You know, on the subject of the elderly, um, all the projections indicate that they are by far uh, the most vulnerable group. Do you have those numbers right now in terms of the age groups most impacted? So if you look at the data from Italy, from South Korea, from Wuhan and, and the rest of China, um, you know, mortality rates, if you get the infection, mortality rates for people above 60 start climbing pretty fast. And once you get into the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, you're talking about, so if we're talking about 1% to 2% overall in the population, we think people in their 70s and 80s, it might be 10, 15, 20% mortality rate, especially if you have comorbid conditions like heart disease or lung disease. Um, you know, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts where you said sometimes you wish you were only interviewing people over the age of 75. <laughs> Those are, um, <laughs> I love that line. I think it was with, maybe it was with Gloria Steinem. Um, and, you know, 
and this has been actually one of the most disturbing things to me, is there a lot of, of younger people who say, well, it'll only affect older people. And I'm like, what do you mean it'll only affect older people? Like, that's the fraying of the social fabric that I worry about, that kind of thinking of it's going to be somebody else. Um, you know, th- these people who are older, these are my parents are both uh, older. Uh, we have a lot of family, relatives, we all do. And then beyond the personal stuff, these are extraordinary human beings who contribute so much, have and continue to. Um, and they are very much at risk for this virus. And so we have to be extra aggressive about trying to protect them. And then we have to be extra aggressive about making sure that if they get infected, if they get sick, um, that we have beds for them and we can take care of them. Um, it is not uh, okay as a society to say, well, you know, it's only affecting one group or another. Um, th- that kind of logic and thinking you know, bothers me a lot. Um, and of course, as, as the numbers are very, very clear, the risks are much, much higher for that population. You teach students of that age. Where do you think that mentality comes from? You know, it's interesting. Um, a, a friend of mine who works um, a lot on care for older people um, says, you know, it's probably one of the last kind of socially acceptable forms of discrimination we have. Um, we've moved forward. I mean, obviously, there's discrimination of all kinds that still exist. But explicitly racial and ethnic discrimination, gender discrimination, discrimination against gays and lesbians um, really has become taboo. And, and, and thank goodness it should be. And, of course, we should continue to work on um, reducing and eliminating those. But age discrimination very much is alive. There's just very much this mentality that still exists um, that, that you know, somehow it's, it's exp- they're in much more of an expendable population. And to me, that mental model, um, which has been around for a long time, I'm not sure that the current young generation is any worse than p- previous younger generations, um, is very harmful mental model. Um, it's not, it doesn't build social cohesion, and it creates an intergenerational tension that I think is deeply unhelpful for both sides. And so we get a lot of that, even in political voting, you know, you go, well, young people support Bernie Sanders, old people support Joe Biden. Um, I think we have to understand what the aspirations of younger people are that Bernie's speaking to, and I think Joe Biden's got to do a better job addressing that. I think we have to understand the aspirations of, of older people that Joe Biden's speaking to. And if Bernie Sanders is going to expand his coalition and make more of a political impact, he's got to address those aspirations. I, I think these splits and divides are very harmful for us. And I, I spend quite a bit of time trying to stamp it out uh, and, and not stamp it out by, you know, yelling at people, but trying to understand why they have those views and how to counter it. You know, you mentioned your parents. Uh I think many people listening have older parents, they have grandparents, they have people in those clusters of ages where they are especially vulnerable. As a person in the world, when you're not on television and not doing podcasts, <laughs> like what steps are you personally taking both on your behalf and for your family? I have, you know, I am really... I, stuck on this because what I've done, I'll tell you exactly what I've done with my parents. Um, I've had serious conversations with them and I've told them that they really have to in many ways socially isolate themselves for the next few weeks. And of course that's really hard because they're both pretty social people. They have friends. 
Um, they like to go out to the mall. They like to go to the grocery store. And, and my answer is no, uh, not right now. Really reduce your grocery store visits. Don't go to the mall. Don't go places where you can interact with a bunch of people. A couple of close friends, probably okay. Um, but I know that, that there's a real psychological challenge that it creates for them. And that means I need to call them more often. It means my brother and, and other family members need to check in on them more, more often. Um, we really have to engage them more often in virtual ways and non, you know, using technology. But it's very hard. And I think there are a lot of older people who are really terrified um, by what's happening with the coronavirus. And I get it. it it's very risky for them. Um, and to, for me to say, look, you have to socially isolate yourself. Yeah, that's easy for me to say, but that has real ramifications for them. Um, but they get why I'm saying it. They get why I'm pushing it. And then it's up to me to try to mitigate a bit of it by being a bit more attentive, being a son who actually calls them back every once in a while. And, you know, all the ways in which we sometimes as sons and daughters fail our parents by not always being as attentive as we should be. Um, it's, it's my responsibility to, uh, to be a bit better about that. And I'm trying. Isn't it interesting how it takes a disaster for us to re-examine how we treat one another? Yeah. You know, the first thing is you started saying that. My, I'll just give you a first reaction. And then I, then I was going to edit it away and I wasn't going to say this, but I'll just say, because my first reaction, as you said, it was, and yeah, and it's not that hard to be different. Like, it's not that hard for me to be a bit more attentive to my parents. Mm -hmm. not, they're not demanding that much more. Um, so it's amazing that it takes a disaster for us to do things that are not actually that hard to do if there was no disaster around. And that, to me, is the kind of the funniest part of all of this, right? Because um, sometimes what we see with disasters is that it changes behavior in the short run and then people go back to where they were. But other times, it changes behavior for the long run. And while I've described a lot of what I worry about the long-run effects of coronavirus and, and how it might fray our society and social fabric, I do, I don't know, maybe at the more hopeful moments, um, wonder if it'll get us to treat each other a bit differently in positive ways, knowing that we're all in this together. And maybe that'll stick for a bit longer than just a couple of weeks after this, um, you know, after this infection is finally over. I don't know. Maybe that's too hopeful, but some part of my brain and heart hopes that's true. Well, you mentioned that the uh, CDC employees and people who, uh, you know, the scientists working on this and, and those uh, studying the situation are natural warriors. And I have to say, after talking to you for the last hour, you strike me as someone who is especially hopeful, despite all the information that you have. So I just want to know, how are you staying hopeful? Where does that come from? It comes from a couple of sources. Um, one is seeing the way people are responding. Um, you know, when I have watched um, the horrors of what's happening in Italy with hospitals overwhelmed, um, and I talk about it with my colleagues and friends, they're all like, if that happens here, if, if we start getting overwhelmed, I'm suiting up, I'm showing up, I'm going to. There is this sense of camaraderie among doctors and nurses and just the broader community of we've got a common enemy and we're going we're gonna to fight and we're going to win. 
Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. I, this the sheer amount of like willpower that I think Americans have to tackle these things. And I'm not suggesting that doesn't exist in Italy. I think they just got blindsided. I just don't think they saw it coming uh, as badly as they did. I, I think Italians probably have the same level of that. So one is just that energy from the community. Second um, is kind of a belief in our ingenuity, in our creativity as a, as a, as a people, as a species. Um, I, I'm not saying that I don't worry that people will not die unnecessarily. I do worry, and I think it will happen. I think we will have pockets where we really do fail the people in our communities and things will go badly. Um, but I just, I look at who we are as a country, the kinds of problems we can solve, the, the speed with which we can generate knowledge. Let me just tell you one, you know, this new virus, I, no, none of us had ever encountered it. We had never heard of it. Really, the first week of January is when we first find out it exists. And within a week, 10 days, we've sequenced it. That sequence, the genetic sequence is out around the world. Scientists are working on it. It's a very vibrant community of incredibly smart people in medicine, in science, uh, in public health that I think are very, very committed. We have an incredible workforce. Uh, and I think that makes me pretty hopeful that we're going to make a lot of progress on this. Um, the job of political leaders is to really enable this community uh, and then get out of the way. And, and I think that's going to happen. So I remain pretty optimistic, not, not naive. You know, not not like Pollyannish that it's all going to be fine. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, but I think we're going to be okay. Well, Doctor, I uh, really hope you're right. I know this is a hectic and busy time for you, so it means the world that you have decided to come on the show and uh, sit with me. It was such a pleasure. It was so fun talking to you. So thank you for uh, reaching out, and uh, and I really enjoyed. It. I hope we don't have to do it again. I hope, or if we do, we can talk about other things. But uh, great. Uh, but you know, if we, if you, if you want to talk again, I would be delighted. Oh, I appreciate that very much. Um, have a safe weekend. Wash your hands. Thank you for everything. All right. Be well. our show special thanks this week to the wonderful team at harvard global health institute i'd also like to give a special thanks to dr ashish Jha. his schedule is especially crazy in these times and uh, it means the world that he sat down with us if you'd like to learn more about him and his work you can visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com this show talk easy is available to stream on spotify apple music stitcher soundcloud wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our editors are Catherine Owen and Andre Lin. Our photographer is Emma Mead. Our social media is by Deja Washington. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Zhang. Our illustrations are by Krishna Shenoy. 
Our design is by Ian Jones. Our engineer is Tim Moore, and we tape out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. And finally, the show is produced each week by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday. Until then, please wash your hands. Bye-bye. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.